1: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Wow, does that song bring back some memories for you? Yeah, of course, that's uh, Canadian singer Nikki Yanofsky there. and That was the theme of the 2010 Whistler Vancouver Olympic Games, I believe. That was a great song, looking back on the Olympic Games. All right, so here's the question this morning. It was so nice. Should we do it twice? Should we bid for the Olympic Games again? Now, this effort uh, took a major step last week. The cities of Vancouver and Whistler teaming up with local First Nations now, exploring the possibility of a bid for the 2030 Winter Olympic Games. I've got John Furlong standing by. He is the president and CEO of the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. Have a listen to this report first from Global News.
2: We're going to explore the feasibility of an indigenous led olympic games
3: this is the start of what could be a world first an indigenous-led olympics this is really um a moment in history a legend being made leaders from the Lil'wat, musqueam squamish and slay nations signing a memorandum of understanding with the city of vancouver and resort municipality of whistler everybody knows that this is our territory you know the acknowledgement that we're getting from the world
4: is unbelievable today Okay.
1: Uh, okay still a long ways to go this is just a memorandum of understanding at this point but it is a step it's a step along the path could it happen again will vancouver bid for another olympic games let's discuss now with my guest john furlong he's a canadian sports administrator of course he was the president and ceo of the 2010 winter olympic games and i'm pleased to welcome him back to the show john thank you for coming on today
4: Good morning, Michael. How
1: are you? Okay, I'm doing great. Now, you've been talking for a while about the possibility of Vancouver doing this again, going for another Olympic Games. What does it mean to you to see this step that we saw last week with Vancouver Whistler teaming up with First Nations? How important is that right now?
4: Well, I think it's a good a very good sign, Mike. I mean we've been we've been talking about this now for the better part of two and a half years and trying to come up with a you know, a sort of a, a position to put forward that would take advantage of what happened in twenty ten and find a way to do this again in a way that it would hopefully, you know, do more good and you know, embrace the whole province, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we started, Mike, we were talking about well look, we've done it once, we have the facilities, why not just simply you know, do it again. Uh, I mean, why wouldn't we? It would just simply be a chance for us to, you know, <laughs> take further advantage of the investments that we made back then. Then COVID came yeah. and we started to think about it, well maybe this is a project that could do a whole lot of good to help the province rebound out of COVID and maybe it could be spread out, maybe it could include other regions of the province. And so for the past couple of years we have been you know, researching that, looking at that, and talking to other communities, and and so the work has evolved quite a bit. I think this is a terrific sign. Um, I think there will be other First Nations leaders and communities across the province who will want to be part of this, as will other communities. So it is setting itself up to be something very unique. And I think the you know the the possibility of being able to stage it at very low cost, um, you know, will will obviously help to bring the public together. To support it as well, so this could be one of those rare things that we that we do together, that only the Olympic Games can bring about. And so I'm excited about it. It's a long way to go. You know, these bids today are different than when we ran them in 2010, Mike, in that the IOC expects the bid to be put forward by the Canadian Olympic Committee. So they're in the pole position, and they have to decide. You know how this is all going to be set up, how it's going to be structured, what the concept is going to look like, and, and so on. What's really good for them is the number of hands that are in the air of people who are saying, "Count me in, if we want all to right. do this." So I think we're in a better position today than we were at this time going back to the 2010. Uh, yeah, it, project. D- it does seem to be
1: sort of gaining steam, especially after this announcement last week. When you take a look uh, look for looking forward to the 2030 Winter Olympic Games, John, like who are the the com- who's the competition here? Like, what other cities have expressed interest in hosting these games to this point?
4: Well, I would say, well, there's a there's a number, and there and there are di- all at different stages. But if I was picking one, that I would say that I'd be concerned about, uh, and I think you've zoned in on something that cannot be forgotten. in This, Mike, you have to have a winning concept. Whatever yeah. it is you decide to do, and however it's led, and whatever you include in that project, it has to beat the other projects uh, that are out there. And I'd say the bid out there that I would be Worried about, not worried about, but the one that I would be trying to line up to make sure that you yeah, that you're able to overcome this, it's the strength that it has is Salt Lake. They've done it before. They follow Los Angeles. It's an economic powerhouse down there. It you know they have the facilities like we have. They have leadership like we had, and so on. So. This would be a, a tough one, and and it would be very easy, if you, if you can imagine, for the IOC to say, well, let's put the Olympic Games of 2028 in Los Angeles, and then let's just go to Salt Lake. It's just a nice, logistical, simpler thing to do. So, when, so our project has to really have elements in it that are somewhat unprecedented, extraordinary. In other words, if we can do low cost, if we can bring the whole province together, if we can make this you know, hugely uh, beneficial for Indigenous peoples. All of that could make the burden of refusal on the IOC much harder. I I, I think that's there for us uh, to be able to pull that off.
1: Speaking to John Furlong, he is the president and CEO of the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver Whistler thinking of going for it again. Um, when you look at the landscape for these 2030 games, you have made, you've made the pitch that, look, we could do this cost effectively because a lot of the venues have already been built and they're still around from the 2010 games Would those venues, not though face some rehabilitation or upgrades in order to bring them up, up to world class. Uh, Uh,
4: world-class status? I I think all of that can be overcome for little or no cost. And here's why, Mike. The, The reason we are looking across the province is that there are communities in the province, places like Victoria, Nanaimo, Prince George, Kamloops, Kelowna, who have venues that are as good or better than some of the ones we used in 2010. So we have options. And so the idea is to find locations and work out the logistics to be able to put these events across the province and not have to get into a dialogue to build facilities when, you know, the province probably wouldn't have an appetite maybe or or a huge appetite to do that, given all of the problems they have to solve related to coming out of COVID. So the, the chance to do it with little or no capital cost is there. And this would also give the bid a certain glow. We would be the first one to ever step up with such a project. The one thing that we will have to obviously get support from the government is on security. But the federal government has on an ongoing basis Tentatively, at least, agree that it will. It's willing to support the security apparatus for two projects like this every decade. So this would qualify for that. So if you take that out of the way, um, it sort of removes one of the big hurdles a bid has, which is this debate that we had in 2010 about costs and can it be controlled and will it grow and you know you want people to be what? confident in the in this and you know Mike, we did two polls yeah. in the, that I've seen in the last six months. One of them was. If we did this uh, without a lot of government funding in it, the numbers are huge. If you have to require big government investment, the numbers start to fall. So the public has already kind of said, you know, what they think about this. So it's important to try to show that you have taken advantage of every possibility to do this without asking the government for funding to build something new
1: speaking to john furlong about another possible olympics bid what about the athletes village we had the athletes village in vancouver has now been turned into condos wouldn't you have to build a new athletes village
4: well no because well first of all if you go to cortina milan for the where the next winter games are on there there's several villages so essentially under this model i just give you a a for instance if there were events in victoria then the athletes would stay there maybe at the university maybe something else there is a, a housing possibility here obviously for events that are staged in the lower mainland and maybe the housing requirements can be part of some housing development project that various levels of government want to get into or universities there are options mike that are acceptable they've been used at other olympic games so it's not like we're we'd be pinned into a corner with only having one but it's certainly the games have in the past typically help the governments, you know, come to grips with housing, you know, projects and initiatives in the area staging the game. So it's conceivable it could do that here, but it's not the only way that we have at our disposal to be able to pull off Athletic
1: L- Foundation. L- last question for you. How much would it cost then? You're not you're not trying to tell me this would be free. No. no. How, mu- how much but would it I, be?
4: What I'm saying is, first of all, that for, for the most part, this would be private sector, Most for the most part. And and it is conceivable there may be, you know, there some venues that require some treatment, but nothing like the scale, not even close to the scale of what we've seen in the past. This would, would I, I mean, I think the guys that are working on the project now, the, the experts that are sort of dealing with some, these are the best people in the world to have on this project. And I think that they will bring forward a project that the public will probably find to be quite endearing. So I think there's a really good chance that we can actually pull that off.
1: Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. You bet. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about speeding now. If you're a lead foot driver, uh, you get whacked up, racked up for speeding. That can be an expensive proposition. If you take a look at the penalties for speeding in British Columbia, and then on top of that, on top of a fine, you can get ICBC penalty points on your auto insurance. It can get very expensive, very expensive quickly but think about this now are speeding fines in British Columbia fair are they too high especially for drivers who are low-income let's talk about that now with my guest Kyla Lee she's a lawyer with Acumen Law she specializes in driving law and I'm very pleased to welcome her back hi Kyla
3: hi Mike thanks for having me back
1: okay so let's first of all Kyla let's talk about how much it does cost if you get caught speeding in British Columbia how much are the fines
3: uh, well, it depends on which type of speeding ticket you get. For a regular speeding ticket, uh, it's $138. If it's uh, 21 kilometers to 30 or to 40 kilometers an hour over the limit, uh, it's $196. And for uh, 40 kilometers and up, it's $368. And if you're 60 kilometers over, uh, it's 400 and, uh, I think $486.
1: Well, what about excessive speed?
3: Those are the 368 and 486.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then that's just to start, right? Like, if you get caught really booking it and you get charged with excessive speed, you get points on your record too?
3: There are three points for any of the speeding tickets. And for excessive speed, it's also considered a high risk offense. So you'll also get a driver risk premium of $320 a year for three years.
1: Okay. So it's a double whammy on your insurance then?
3: Is it right? is. You, yeah, your insurance rates go up, plus you pay the premium.
1: Right. So how much would that roughly be for an average driver? Like how much would your insurance go up a year?
3: Uh, it depends on who you are, what type of car you're driving, all of the yeah. various risk factors. So it's impossible to know for like the average driver, but, you know, generally a couple hundred bucks. Right.
1: OK. What about can the cops impound your car?
3: They can. It's a mandatory seven-day impound. And if for a second incident of excessive speeding, it goes up to 30 days.
1: And it costs you money to get the car back, right?
3: It does, yes. Yeah. Uh, impound fees are covered uh, under legislation in BC. So for the first impound, you're looking at about $250. For a 30-day impound, it's close to $1,000. Okay.
1: Okay. So you add it all up and it's like, yeah, this can be a pricey uh, thing to go through for sure. Now, Give me your take, Kyla, on whether you think this, the system is fair, because you think that, you know, it's kind of a, a regressive kind of fine if you think about it that way. Like if you're a, a very wealthy person and you get uh, a speeding ticket, even a hefty one, if, if you got if you're a millionaire, it's kind of slap on the wrist. But if you're a low income person, it hurts a lot more. Would you Would yeah. you say that?
3: Yeah. yeah absolutely. I mean, if you've got money um, and your car is impounded for seven or thirty days, you can rent another car, you can take ubers, you can afford taxis, you could aff- afford to pay the insurance increases and and all of that is essentially just the cost of doing business associated with your your speeding. It's not about to change your behavior. But for people who are low income, even people who are just living paycheck to paycheck, like the vast majority of British Columbians, a single excessive speeding ticket is money that you do not have. It might be the difference between buying groceries that month and paying the speeding ticket. And then there's all of these other hidden costs like the insurance increases and the driver risk premiums. That's taking money away from families. That's taking money away from people who need it for things just to survive.
1: Okay so what would you suggest to to correct something like that like some sort of means test on a on a speeding fine like if you're a rich person you pay more
3: there is. That is a model that's used in some European countries where your wow. fines are, uh, are tied to your income. I don't necessarily love that model because, of course, for wealthy people, there's lots of ways that you can hide your income. Like, you know, you can have a corporation and keep your money in your corporation. You can do all sorts of tax things to make you look like you're not making that much money. Um, so I don't think that that's necessarily the best way to do it. Um, what I think is that the consequences of speeding tickets should be more about education and deterring the behavior in the future than punishing people financially.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about that deterrence aspect of it, because I think that's important. Like, what we want to do is not only punish people fairly, but also deter people from speeding and dangerous driving again in the future. So let me tell you a quick personal story, Kyle. I'll get your thoughts. So uh, I got, once got nabbed for speeding and Washington State, and I was on the I five in Washington State, driving behind the wheel of the family minivan, pulled over by a state trooper, and I got I got whacked for it. He wrote me up for like it was hundreds of dollars. Like I think I got like a two hundred two or three hundred dollar ticket U S. And uh, they tracked me down. Like I didn't pay it for a while, and then I started getting letters in the mail. Like you better pay this, or we're going to come and get you. If you ever come across the border, we'll seize your vehicle. So I thought, oh man, I better pay this. So I paid it. Now the moral of the story is, anytime I was ever de- like, I learned my lesson from that. Especially, if, <laughs> especially if I was driving in Washington State, I slowed down. So I think I learned my lesson. Are are you arguing that a hefty fine does not deter people? From speeding again?
3: Well, it, it certainly doesn't deter people who don't really feel the impact of the fine. You know, if you have the money to pay it, it's not going to change your behavior. It's whatever. It's three hundred and sixty eight more dollars. It's three hundred dollars more a year. It's, it's nothing to a lot of people. Um, so it's not going to change their behavior. The whole point or the logic behind having high fines is that the more you pay it, the more money you pay, the less likely you are to engage in the behavior because of how significantly the financial consequence impacted you. But that assumes that everybody is in the same financial situation, which just isn't the reality on our roads.
1: Okay, so what would be a better way, in your opinion, like you think that a better way would be to, what, have mandatory driver training, education, education? Could something like that work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And they do that in California where they have a driving school that you can be referred to if you have a particularly bad driving record and you have to go take a class or you can't have a driver's license. Um, Providing a service like that, and there's lots of online-based courses that people can take um, to rehabilitate their driving behavior. Um, Education um, is, is more likely to have a lasting impact on people's behavior than simply making them pay a fine. And for people who can't afford the fine, that might be a decision that they make then just not to drive because you can, you can, if you don't pay the fine, you can't get your license, you can't renew your insurance, so they might just stop driving, which doesn't change their behavior on the road. It just punishes people disproportionately.
1: Okay, is there any evidence that if you, instead of walloping people with high, super high fines, if you said, okay, you've now racked up let's say two speeding tickets so now you face mandatory driver training or some kind of online learning that you're required to go through is there any evidence that that would reduce the recidivism like you know would that be a more effective deterrent and people would stop speeding if you did that like does it work in california where they have a system like that
3: there's Tons of studies that have been uh, shown uh, to decrease people's chances of recidivism where rehabilitative tools like education um, and training are used in place of punitive measures like fines and license prohibitions. Um, And this isn't just in the driving context, it's in every context. If you look at the criminal justice system as a whole, a focus on rehabilitation has been studied in all over the world and consistently has been shown to produce better long-term outcomes when it comes to recidivism than punishing people in a, in a more heavy-handed way does.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Are speeding fines fair? Should education and driver training be brought in to prevent people from speeding again? Kylie is my guest. Lots of calls on this one. Chris in Penticton. Hey, Chris.
5: Hi. you doing? Nice to talk to you, Mike.
4: What do you think, Chris? Uh, well, I think that uh, we're going about this the whole wrong way. Uh, I, I agree that fines should be prohibited. I prohibitive, it, uh, so people really get a slap in the face. But more importantly, we used to have way, way back when when I started to drive. If you got over a certain amount of points,
5: your license got removed. Now I've driven with the transit. I've seen far too many people die, critically injured, because
4: of people speeding. I've had two speeding tickets in my whole life, and both I accepted because hey, I was being stupid. Um, so no, you
2: so you, you
1: think sh- there so you think there should be more so tougher penalties to take away people's driving privileges?
3: Absolutely, Kyla. No, and that
4: would deal with and that would deal with the rich people.
1: Okay, Kyla, what do you think of that?
3: You know, uh, taking away somebody's driving privileges can amount to taking away their livelihood. Essentially, people who rely on their vehicles to work, to perform their jobs, or people who need their vehicles to get to their place of employment. You take away their licenses, then you take away their job. And all of a sudden, you've taken a contributing member of society who's contributing to the economy out of that equation and put them in a, an even worse situation simply because of the speeding ticket.
1: Well, and we already have that in BC, do we not? I mean, that you can't you can lose your license.
3: Yes, you absolutely yeah, can lose your yeah. license. You yeah. two speeding tickets, two excessive speeding tickets, your license is going to be yanked.
1: Yeah. Okay. There you go, Pete in Vancouver. Hey, Pete, what do you think?
5: Hi. Yeah, I think uh, a bit of a different solution. I think that every driver, every decade, should be forced to take a driving test uh, on their own dime, and also be uh, have some video on what are the real causes of road accidents, what are the real outcomes, that sort of thing. Because everyone thinks they're a good driver and everybody else is idiots. If you had mandatory training for everyone, every not every year, but say every 10 years, I think you would really change the sort of selfishness and the rudeness that you see so often on the road.
1: What like what you mean for everyone? Like even if you
5: everyone. So
1: even if you don't have a speeding ticket or any penalties. That's
5: right, because okay. I mean well. have you not seen idiots on the road, Mike? Sure. Who hasn't? That's the thing. Uh, and because you get you get it once in your life, you learn what to do, and then you're tested on your knowledge, rich, poor or the other, and then for the rest of your life you're expected to magically remember it and act as if you know, that's okay. still the case. That will wake people up.
1: Kyla, more driver training. Your thoughts?
3: You know, I think now that we have much more available technology for training, we can do courses online, we can yeah. offer courses to massive numbers of people at a time over platforms like Zoom or MS Teams. It is something the government should consider. You, you know, your caller makes a very good point that you take your road test once or twice, I guess, right. you get your end, and then you get your, your class five, and then you can drive until you're 80 without ever taking another road test again
1: yeah yeah no it's true manny on the line in vancouver hi
3: yes i uh,
4: i agree that the penalties should be stricter, and i'll explain to you in, in a couple of seconds <clears throat> i'm from europe and there from my country where i was born if if the speed is 80 if you go at 81 you gotta find and if you go at 85 the fine is the is the same price, but if you go at, like, say, at 86, the the, the ticket uh, doubles up, and nobody complains that it's a tax grab for the government. The, I I don't agree with the with the guy say that every 10 years. So, so you so supposed the, to be good at what you are.
1: So the fines are higher in Europe. Is that what you're telling me?
4: Yes. Kyla. Uh, they, can, uh, they can double up too easy.
3: Kyla. The license consequences in Europe are very different than they are here. So the, the fines are really the only uh, deterrent that's being used. And again, some European countries scale the fines associated to your income. But people in Europe mm. also have more of an opportunity to drive a lot more quickly uh, with places yeah. like the Autobahn. So those people sure. who feel the need to speed can get that out in areas where there's just no speed limit at all.
1: Kelly and Ladner. Hi, Kelly.
3: Oh, hi. I just I uh, was reiterating the fellow before the last caller that there should be retesting and take people to the hospital or show them on video what speeding and accidents can do you know it's Mm. very selfish um attitude to just think you can go 110 in a 60.
1: thank you kelly i've heard a lot of arguments for for more testing and more training for sure let's squeeze another one in here miles calling from chase
4: hi miles good morning thank you for taking the call uh the thing i look at are, uh, why post speed limits if you're not going to en- enforce them? Like, I live in the interior, and the highways here, it's just accident after accident. And a lot of them, trucks, people getting hurt and killed, just just doesn't make any sense. Just put the penalty for the crime. You know, just, like, as far as I'm concerned, $1,000 is not enough up here for a speeding ticket. Okay. And after three, you're walking.
1: Thank you, thank you, Miles. In terms of enforcement, Kyla, is there... Is there even enforcement across the province or does it vary from place to place?
3: It does vary from place to place, but, um, you know, there are dedicated highway traffic units uh, in the interior, on the island um, and in the lower mainland that deal with sort of those high crash roadways. The problem is that it's very difficult to enforce because there's not a lot of places that the police can park safely to monitor the speed of traffic. And so they don't have a lot of opportunities for enforcement unless they actually are driving along and see somebody committing the offense.
1: Okay, Kyle, we got one minute left here. Is it easy to fight a speeding ticket in court?
3: Uh, Not really. Um, There's a lot that goes into it. You know, you have the officer's measurement of your speed, whether they use laser, radar, moving mode, radar, whether they made a visual estimation or uh, even paced your vehicle. All of those have various different variables that can affect the reliability of that measurement. There's also the officer's own visual estimation of your vehicle, which comes into play. Um, So knowing the sort of nuances of all of those things, knowing the science and the technology behind all of that uh, is going to put you in a better position to successfully defend
1: speeding ticket. Kyla, thank you for coming on today.
3: Thank you for having
1: me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Canada-U.S. relations now under President Joe Biden. Now, many Canadians were expecting improved relations between Canada and the United States after the Donald Trump era. But has Joe Biden really been a friend to Canada? There are a number of trade disputes between the two countries, for one thing. Got a great panel on this standing by. First, have a listen to this. This was the other day in the House of Commons. You're going to hear a conservative critic, Michael Chong, here uh, challenging Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland on Canada's relations with the Biden administration. Have a listen to this. Mr. Speaker, it's clear that Canada's standing in Washington has declined. The Prime Minister committed to a renewed relationship with the Biden administration. Instead, we got electric vehicle tax credits that threaten auto jobs, stringent Buy American policies, measures targeting our dairy farmers, actions against pipelines that have contributed to skyrocketing energy prices, and now a doubling of softwood lumber tariffs. It's clear this this Prime Minister does not have a close working relationship with the President.
4: The Prime Minister has a very strong, very effective working relationship with the President. I was there. I saw it in action. I saw their
3: extensive tête-à-tête where important issues were raised.
1: Okay, Michael Chong versus Christian Freeland there in the House of Commons the other day. Is Joe Biden a friend to Canada or not? Let's discuss now. What a great panel we've got for you. Keith Martin on the line former mp from right here in british columbia he now lives and works in washington dc i'm very pleased to welcome him back hi keith hi mike how are you i'm doing great thanks a lot for doing this also on the line political columns of the toronto sun brian Lilly. his column on this the other day with friends like joe biden canada does not need enemies hey brian
0: hey mike good to speak to you
1: thanks to both of you for being here brian let me go to you first that was quite a rip snorting column you wrote the other day about the biden administration and canada u.s relations what's your take on biden as far as whether he's good for canada or not
0: well look joe biden is more protectionist than donald trump he just does it with a smile says aw shucks maybe throws in a malarkey And seems like a nice guy while he's taking uh, our industries to task. So uh, Joe Biden is is not good for Canada. Uh, You know, the the protectionism that we used to see pop up in uh, Congress now and again started to move to the White House under Obama. It went on steroids under Donald Trump. And now with Joe Biden, it's only getting worse with Donald Trump. He often used protectionist measures like tariffs as a negotiating tactic. With Joe Biden, it is a put America first policy that is part of his domestic agenda that he does not appear ready to back away from.
1: Is it mostly the the build back better act in the United States that's producing these irritants for Canada, Brian?
0: Uh, no, because the PEI potato issue isn't part of that. The uh, softwood lumber is not part of that. The dairy issue is not part of that. Um, there are, you know, other provisions that have been in place for a long time that, uh, you know, will leave out, uh, whether it's the uh, the flyer buses made in, in Winnipeg or the rail cars made in uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario, that... Um, you know, they are designed to say if you're building public transit infrastructure, you must use uh, American-made parts. Uh, Those Uh, have been in place for a long time, and and they're just going to continue to ramp up how much American-made material you have to use.
1: Okay, let me go to former MP Keith Martin, uh, now works closely with the Biden administration there in Washington, D.C. Keith, what do you think? Is Biden good or bad for Canada here right now? Well, Certainly,
2: uh, President Biden wish he'd be a uh, more of a free trader, as Brian alluded to. But he, Brian's also absolutely correct in comparing President Biden with President Trump. And you, when you're engaging in relations and negotiations, you have to have, be able to have a trustworthy, consistent uh, partner where your values and interests uh, align somewhat. And you do this in a stable environment. And you don't have friends in politics, you use your power to suit the interests of your own country. So across economics, defense, health, and the environment, the big ticket items that we're dealing with now, Biden, by, by a million miles, is head and shoulders above President Trump. President Trump essentially threw a grenade in the international relations that we all share, which we know are really important to deal with everything from economic interest to climate change and to defense. President Biden has brought the United States back into the World Health Organization, back into the and strengthen the World Trade Organization. The United States has done more for the COVID-19 pandemic than all other countries combined. We're actually collaborating, as President uh, Trump, uh, sorry, President Biden, and Prime Minister Trudeau have done on a number of areas in terms of economics. Certainly, we hope, as Brian said, that there'd be a greater uh, element of free trade, but that's the area of negotiations that you have. But across economics, defense, health, and the environment, uh, President uh, Biden is head and shoulders above President Trump and is a better partner for Canada.
1: Brian Lilly, what do you think of that?
0: Well, I, uh, I I'm not going to um, defend uh, President Trump's record. It, he was not great for Canada. Uh, I'll agree with uh, my old friend Keith. Uh, Keith, by the way, um, you used to wear cardigans into the House of Commons to keep warm because you're a West Coaster and you didn't like the cold. <laughs> I'm I'm here at the Ontario Legislature today, zipped up just like you, with a a nice uh, cardigan on to keep myself warm. Uh, look, Trump was not great for international relations. Everything Keith said was was accurate biden is in my view making a show of it but there's not a lot of uh, change in some ways i'll give an example we thought that um with canada being short of vaccinations and the u.s having a stockpile that perhaps we would end up being able to get vaccines sooner uh through american sources especially if you recall early on europe started canceling our orders and we thought well maybe the u.s will help they were tens of millions in stockpile and biden wouldn't give any in fact he only gave us some astrazeneca because the americans weren't using it and it was going to expire and but the deal was we had to send him our astrazeneca that we got later on so you know the the idea that we are the americans best friends and that things are going to go great and especially if there's a democrat in the white house simply isn't true and i just like to disabuse canadians of that notion something keith said a moment ago was completely accurate you don't have friends in politics you have ways of using your power or your influence to get to the outcome that you want the idea that the americans are our friends or democrats are nicer to us just isn't true yet it lives on in the canadian imagination
1: Talking about U.S. President Joe Biden, whether he's a friend of Canada, my guests are Keith Martin and Brian Lilly. Keith, you move in the circle there of international relations in Washington, D.C. I'm sure you've got your finger on the pulse on on the relations between our two countries. Like what is the buzz that you're hearing in Washington, D.C. with a lot of these trade disputes going on right now? Is is this considered just sort of normal operating procedure like. You know, I've been I've been covering uh, softwood lumber disputes for the last thirty years here between British Columbia and the United States. It just never seems to end. Or do, is this just sort of situation normal, or are people concerned about it? Well, nothing is
2: normal down here uh, anymore, um, Mike. And I can assure you of that. Uh, this country here is, and I, I'm about a kilometer north of the White House. so I've been watching this play out over over nearly nine years. And this country is being torn apart internally. And if you look at the role that President Trump played in what is happening, has happened and is happening in this country, President Trump is, being, is, is undermining the very foundations of democracy in this country. And Brian will appreciate the fact that you've got to have a stable, reliable trustworthy partner even if you're going to disagree on on things that's not what mr trump has done and what he's doing right now he's actually undermining the very foundations of democracy through fundamental issues of voting access uh and he's just uh, undermining the whole election process here and that's critically important because an unstable united States, an unstable united states is absolutely a, a threat to, to Canada and our ability to engage in the economics that Brian is mentioning, I want to bring up one thing on the economic side though. Sure. when President Trump came in, you'll remember that the Asia, Asia, uh, the, the uh, APAC uh, uh, deal the trade deal that was meant to be able to work uh, in a multilateral way to deal with the issue of China, President Trump came in immediately to blew that whole thing apart. That was a really consequential and damaging uh, uh, economic uh, threat to our country and indeed to the United States and, and the world. And then finally, just on the issue of Russia, President Trump has been closing up to him while the United while Russia has been undermining and attacking this country through cybersecurity. And our countries, the United States and Canada, do work very closely on cybersecurity on the military, as Brian knows very, very well. And that's a very strong relationship that continues to grow under President Biden and Mr. Trudeau.
1: Brian, do you agree with Keith's take there on Trump, that Trump continues to be a a destabilizing force in the United States, and that's bad for Canada? Do you agree with that?
0: Absolutely. Look, um, Trump got some good things right in his domestic policy, including economics and taxation, and he had employment for black and Hispanics down to the lowest level in decades. And that was good on many other issues. He was horrible for allies like Canada. He was, he, since he lost the election, he has been undermining the election. Uh, I still have people telling me that, well, you know, our election was stolen because of the voting machines, obviously put out by people who don't know that we don't use voting machines in this country, but that's the type of big lie that, that Trump continues to spread in the U S it has spillover effects into this country. You have to have faith in your democratic institutions, Um, and he's undermining that. I think it would be a disaster for the Republicans if he runs again in 2024, but he's obviously looking to do that.
1: All right, welcome back. As we continue talking Canada-U.S. relations under U.S. President Joe Biden, is Biden good or bad for Canada? My guests are Keith Martin, former MP. He now lives and works in Washington, D.C. Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. Phone lines are open, 604 two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell let's go to your calls daryl in coquitlam hi daryl what do you think
5: yeah i have a a question specifically uh for keith in washington I'm, i'm a senior and what i don't understand about the united states is why do they continuously review and bring back roe versus wade that's from the from the 70s in Canada, that's all finished. Rights to abortion and, and women controlling their uh, their own bodies has been put to rest in this country. Why do the Americans keep going back at it,
2: Keith? Yeah, that's a great question. And the rest of the world is moving towards, uh, thankfully, enabling women to uh, have safe, free uh, abortions if they if they want to. It bears down into a, into a larger sort of cultural. Uh, divide here in the United States where um, Protestant Christian movements and Catholics, too, um, uh, and right-of-center people are using cultural and religious issues to divide the country and pursue uh, power, basically. They misinform the public. They hold up um, uh, cultural and religious issues uh, as ways to be able to bring people around those issues, and then they use that ability to mobilize those individuals to advance their political interests. That's why got the abortion issue, climate change, the mask wearing issue around the pandemic, um, marriage equality issues, uh, they all are centered around these sort of values-based issues that are used for political gain. It's, and it's really tragic because as you restrict abortion rates, two things happen. Number one, more women die. Second, you get more abortions. So it's, it's a horrible situation here, and it's terrible to see this happening uh, in this country. It's an assault on women. It's an assault on women's health.
1: Well, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze in one more here. Dave on the line in Fannie Bay. Hi, Dave.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, you know, if our softwood is selling, with, selling down there with a 35% tariff, it suggests to me that we we're probably selling it too cheap. My question is, would an export tax on softwood going to the united states be an effective uh resolution of this and we could actually keep the money on this side and put it to good work here uh, uh subsidizing our own domestic market
1: okay brian Lilly from the toronto sun your, th- your thoughts on that
0: uh, I, I don't know that we need to go in in, in that direction it's partly selling because there's a, a large demand to build new homes and they need wood uh and the price of wood has gone up everywhere so uh, perhaps that's why uh, the um, uh, doubling the tariff uh, hasn't really impacted things. But look, we were able, we've been able to get softwood lumber deals over the years, off and on. Um, the most recent one Stephen Harper got in 2006. It expired in 2013. They extended it to 2015, and since then. There's been no, no deals, not with Obama, not with Trump, and not with Biden. So something's got to give. It, it took a lot of heavy lifting by bureaucrats, by politicos to get the deal in 2006. That's what we need to get a deal now.
1: Okay, we just got uh, one minute left. Keith Martin, do you think that these, these trade disputes between Canada and the United States are going to be resolved, or do you see them getting worse and Canada retaliating and getting into trade wars?
2: There will be threats of retaliation. and They will be carried out unless their interests are met, but that's the, the, the role and the responsibility of Prime Minister Trudeau. He's doing that now with the electric vehicle subsidies here in the United States. That's the right thing to do. But this is the place where we negotiate. We don't agree on everything, and what we disagree on, we negotiate our way out of. And at the end of the day, though, we're, our two countries are our closest trading partners, and, uh, at least for us, and uh, closest allies, and that will continue into the future.
1: Brian Lilly, 20 seconds. Do you think it's going to get better or worse?
0: Uh, Well, the Prime Minister Trudeau was thankfully talking this morning about how they have offered to have matching electric vehicle subsidies across the border. Let's hope that that works. Uh, Biden has some pushback inside his own country on what he's trying to do because of some of the measures. Let's hope this helps him get it through.